I've had people say to me during the pandemic, I'm not a therapist. You're asking me to be a therapist. I got, I don't want to come in and hear people's emotions. And I, you know, I always say to them, take five minutes and just do it. Because at the end of the day, that's what's going to engage people, not anything else. So it's also helping leaders measure the ROI. If they're actually putting in, let's say touch points of the beginning of their meetings, what's something we want to celebrate, getting people to talk about how they're feeling as a result of certain changes, and then absolutely taking a look at their performance vis-a-vis the quarter before when they didn't do any of it. That's a way to also have proof in it. Ready to learn why cash flow and compassion are not mutually exclusive? Each week, brand strategist, speaker, and author Maria Ross will introduce you to the trailblazing brands and leaders who embrace empathetic tactics to reap huge rewards. You'll learn about winning teams, brand wins and fails, unforgettable customer experience, and bold leadership decisions fueled by compassion. You'll get the latest trends and research, discover practical ways to infuse more empathy into your work and life, and hear from innovative market leaders who've smashed outdated models and redefined success. Welcome to the Empathy Edge podcast, the show that proves empathy isn't just good for society, it's great for business. We've been through some serious business and culture shifts the last few years, but this is the way things always are. If it's not COVID, if it's not social unrest, it will surely be something else in the future. Remember, the only constant is change, even if you don't ask or plan for it. How can you examine, design, and measure your organization's ability and your own leadership ability to build trust so you can more easily adapt to change and bring your people along? My guest today is Esther Weinberg, founder and chief leadership development officer of The Ready Zone. She's the author of Better Leaders, Better People, Better Results, Six Eye-Opening Strategies to Thrive Through Change You Didn't Ask For, which is a perfect subtitle. We talk about how issues start off as a profit problem, but are actually people problems. How to create cultures where trust, respect, and safety are valued and measured as they impact the bottom line. And what questions you should really be asking about how to make hybrid work successful. First, a little bit more about Esther. She's a business growth accelerator that equips executives in high growth industries to create big pivots, big impact, and big returns. Esther's innovative strategies have assisted clients to grow, scale, and thrive in the worst and best of times, including Netflix, NBC Universal, Microsoft, CNN, Adobe, Disney, and IMAX. Esther is a member of the Forbes Coaches Council and a contributor to Forbes. Today, Esther shares six zone performance indicators, or ZPIs, that are paramount to profitable growth. We also had a rich conversation about how emotions, body, and language impact performance in a real way, how emotions are signposts that should not be ignored, and how to look at complaints as commitments. And we offer some tough love advice if you're a leader struggling to get comfortable with dealing with emotions if you want to achieve high performance. We both have some choice words for you at the end of our interview, so take a listen. Hello, Esther Weinberg, and welcome to this episode of The Empathy Edge to talk about how to grow, scale, and thrive in the worst and best of times. Welcome. 
Thank you so much for having me. I love when you say the the best and worst of times. <laughs> it's true. It's true. <laughs> isn't that isn't that how the tale of two cities opens up? Um, yeah, it's true. It's um, true. I love it. Well, you know, you have such a wealth of experience and knowledge around helping companies in high growth industries to pivot, to have big impact. And, you know, pivot, I think has been the word of the last two years. Yeah. Um, so let's talk a little bit first about how you got to this work. What is your, what's your origin story? <laughs> As my friend, Elisa Camelport Page would say. I was born in a hospital <laughs> in Brooklyn, New York. <laughs> well, you know, it's, it's, um, you know, my, my career started off actually in, in marketing and publicity. I think when it was interesting when I was, if we're really going to go back, I remember I was, I was a student at New York university. I'm a New Yorker, born and raised, very proud. Woo-hoo, woo-hooo. Yeah. Queens um, girl, Queens girl right here. Oh, look at that. Brooklyn. Can I tell you? <laughs> <laughs> so, um, I remember when, uh, in, and when I was at NYU as I was trying to figure out my major and I took a media class and they were talking about how this group of people come in and talk to reporters and, and talk to them about story ideas. And they're called, uh, publicists or public relations professionals. And I thought I have to be one of these people. I just thought it was unbelievable as journalism major. And I thought it was fascinating because I was always fascinated by the human condition and, and very highly curious and always very curiously engaged. And uh, I was in marketing and publicity for, for quite a while. That was my original background. I worked at a small agency starting off, but then I wound up working for big brands like Fox and Disney. And I remember when I was at a turning point for me, I was an executive, a senior executive at Disney. And we were sitting around one of those very, you know, old world oak. Oh, (laughs) yeah. Oh, yeah. Mm -hmm. And the CFO said, uh, he's just giving an update. And there was a management consultant in the room, which was really interesting. And And he said, oh, I just want you to know a third of the workforce have left. And I remember both myself and the head of sales were floored. And I thought, what do you mean a third of the workforce have left? Why are we not investigating this? Why are we not? I mean, it, yeah, it was, it, it's like a Columbo moment. Like, by the way. <laughs> well, it's funny because today we would use a lot of buzzwords around it. Like we would say workforce engagement and, and things like that. But it was like, people left? Are you kidding? You know, mm-hmm, <laughs> it was more like mm-hmm. that. And um, I think I was just so floored that, we weren't investigating it. And there was this, this feeling that we're a big brand. We'll always be able to attract people, which is mm. interesting where we are present day with, with reten- talent retention. Absolutely. That idea that like people want to be here. People want to come here. We don't have to try. Yeah. Yeah. It's like, you know, we are who we are and it's not a problem. And I just thought, oh, wow, that's, that's, uh, I don't know if that's helpful. And so <laughs> I, I remember there was, there was a moment in time though, where I was, where we were shifting gears as a, as a brand. And I was going to be head of all of corporate communications for the suite of services that Disney offered. And I had reached, reached a point where I didn't feel like I really had respect for the, the person I reported to, mm-hmm. but I didn't know that at the time. And I just had this real turning point. And it was interesting because the, I, I thought I, I have to, and a mentor of mine said, you know, it's time for you to devise an exit strategy. If you feel disillusioned, then why are you going to stay in a job like that? And mm-hmm. I was 
think I was 30. I was a vice president. I was like, you know, you look back, you're like, I'm young and scrappy. Like I can't leave a job. What am I going to do? You know? And, mm-hmm. and so I designed my exit and it was interesting because when I designed my exit, um, the day that I went in to resign, my boss also let me go, which was, it right. was just, I guess it was for both of us. So but what I would say from there is I, I started to really inquire as to what was really true for me and what I was really passionate about. And I stumbled on this whole concept around leadership development, talent development, executive coaching. And so I became certified, trained, certified in executive coaching and started a leadership development business. And it really took me, I would say, across the globe. I mean, not only have I done work for big brands like Netflix and Warner Brothers Discovery, State Farm Insurance, National Geographic, CNN, um, but also I've done work in the Middle East. I've done work in uh, in Africa, in Botswana, wow. and I also moved myself to Uganda, Africa, because I I had reached a point in my life where I really wanted to do children's rights work, and I had the opportunity to go in country and to do an organizational assessment for a project that was funded by the U.S. Well, there were several things. One was doing a an assessment for an organization that was the largest child rights membership based organization in all of all of Africa. Mm-hmm. And I was a part of a, a three person team, two Ugandan men and me, and they affectionately called me the Mzungu, which was an affectionate term for a white person. And so we, we went around Uganda and we, we did this profound assessment for the organization. And we also did an assessment of ch- children's rights and then in the state of children's rights in the country. And then at night, I ran my business <laughs> doing um, organizational change mm-hmm. with um, high growth companies in the United States. And at that time, that was not, yeah. it was an unheard of thing. And so and is, that, is that when you start, was that the ready zone that you're, you're running now? Yeah, well, what happened when I came back, not to make a long story longer, but um, I had had this kind of like this aha moment in Uganda, when I was doing this project for the U.S. government around AIDS, malaria, tuberculosis analysis, and uh, I just got that I needed to come home. And after a while, coming back to the United States, I really realized, I think I had this turning point in my career where I was, I think people, either whether you're an entrepreneur or just an executive, you get to, we're just like, what am I doing? What am I doing it for? And where am I going? And (laughs) and Mm -hmm. that's the moment. And I really realized that I had dived deep into what my I want my legacy to be and really saw that was around human dignity. And from there, because it was really an extension of all the work that I had done. And uh, and what I saw was when I looked up and around, like, you know, executives really want to feel ready to powerfully take on all the opportunities and challenges at their feet. They just don't know how. Mm-hmm. But the real secret sauce to doing it is creating workplace cultures where trust, respect, and psychological safety are not just, you know, talked about, but they're not just valued, but they're as measured as the bottom line. And that's when we created the ready zone, because that was like, okay, how do we get people ready and create a a framework and a formula for how people do it practically and pragmatically. So it's not just theory that people can go ahead and do it because, you know, as you know, that the challenges that people are facing today or opportunities that people are facing today, they're real. People want answers now, not tomorrow, today, and this minute. Absolutely. Absolutely. And so let's let's dive into that because what a fascinating journey you've taken. And I I just before we move on, I want to not 
let it slip by that you talk about human dignity when you're talking about organizational culture, when you're talking about leadership development and leadership capability. And I think that's been the missing piece in so many industrialized organizations, if you will, in that we have forgotten that human beings are working for us. It's, you know, we sort of threw out this term human resources as if they were just another asset on our asset list. And there is so much wrapped up in the human experience about how we show up at work, how we're treated at work, what we're uh, enabled to achieve at work that really gets down to this fundamental right of human dignity. And that might sound really lofty to maybe a CEO going, I'm just trying to solve software, right? But (laughs) it it fundamentally is what it's all about. Well, I'll give you a a real practical example. Like I was talking to two executives last week and, and we were talking about the fact that their organization has shifted massively, which many organizations today have, and they've laid a bunch of people off. And it was the first time that in the organization's history that they've ever laid people off. And this is a multi-billion dollar company, which is amazing. And they were talking about the fact that they're now trying to figure out what kind of leaders they need to be during these times because they're reorient, the work is being reoriented. And what's being asked of them as leaders is different, where it was more of, let's say, a egalitarian or autonomous environment. Well, now it's it's injected with a little bit more of hierarchy, meaning that everybody just can't make everything. Something someone's going to need to be a bit be the last veto. And so we were talking about what kind of leader do you need to be, and what is that insight? And what I said to them was, we have to remember a couple of things. If if the foundation of what you're trying to create, you're trying to figure this out for you, and then you're trying to figure it out for the people who report to you, like what kind of environment do we do we want to make? And they were all about, they love the concept of, of uh, readiness and human dignity. And I said, well, I want to be clear, that doesn't mean every you're going to want everybody at the end of the day. And I don't mean for that to be the way it sounds, but I said, you know, it may be that you may need to usher people out yeah. because they're not in alignment with where you're growing, which happens, right? You get a job, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. you sign up for a job at a certain point, you're in a job for a few years, culture changes, the business changes. It's not a match anymore. It happens all the time, right? But what I said is the distinction is that you usher them out with as much di- human dignity as you onboard them. And so, and they- they were like, I, I hadn't even ever thought of it that way. Absolutely. And I've talked about this in, in my empathy work is that mm-hmm. sometimes empathy is not just about doing what everybody wants. It's about That's doing right. the right thing, but the way that you do it is with empathy. And and in cases where someone's not in the right job, right? Nobody wants to come to work and fail every day. And so it's actually the empathetic thing to do to sit down with that person and try to figure out what could help them succeed? What is going on with them? And if they're still not a fit for the organization, it's actually empathetic to help them let go and help them find an opportunity where their talents and their values can thrive. Absolutely. Look, I remember. I, look, I remember in my career. The, you know, everybody always remembers their first. You know, the first time you ever had to let someone go. And I yes. remember when I remember when I had to let um, the first person, uh, one woman go. And I remember like HR was in the room with me and, and I was trying to cobble together the words and just why I was a mess. Cause I really liked her mm-hmm. so much. 
And, legal, and, I, and legally, there's only so much you can say as well. Like there's absolutely. that added, added layer of complexity. <laughs> and so, and then we're, you know, I, I, I said, I'll walk you out. And so we're both in the elevator going downstairs and there's a security guard with us, which of course felt very intimate. And then we get to the street, <laughs> gave me a big hug. And she's like, look, I got to tell you, I don't think this was a fit for a while. And mm-hmm. I just think my skill set is in another place. And I, I, I hate that this had to happen, but I actually feel pretty liberated. And I was like, oh my God, this is. <laughs> You're like, okay. thank you. Yeah. Thing, but I'm glad it worked. But, totally. but yeah, I, I would say to you that it's a, you know, when people hear the phrase human dignity, I really think that they get very lost in it because it sounds very lofty, but it mm-hmm. really comes down to what you're speaking to also is how do we create, it, it comes down to how do we create the best workplaces where people can do their best work? Mm-hmm. So it's like, I was talking to a, an executive, a senior executive, at a media company the other day. And she was saying, this is a few weeks ago. And she was saying that they're, they're, they have a hybrid work environment and they're really trying to figure out how they get people back into the office at least two days out of the week. And I said, well, what, what's coming out of those conversations in this, on, at the senior executive table? And she's like, well, we keep going round and round, but we don't really have an answer. And I said, well, maybe you need to change the question because the question is not, how do we get people into an office? The question is, what kind of environment we're we creating that people want to actually come Mm-hmm. And they feel like they want to come in droves rather than feeling like it's a prison. You know, I'm going to, I'm right. locking you into these four walls. Right. Because what we, what, and what she and I started talking about is that if your culture is not portable, then that's really where the effort needs to be is that culture needs to train. And we've seen this since COVID is that culture transcends the physical office space. And so hundred percent. This is the thing. It's like these companies that have fallen back. I've had a few episodes where we've talked about this. I spoke to Rebecca Fries about the good culture, a book that she wrote Mm -hmm. and where she talked about the fact that culture is how work gets done. And that is not limited to four walls and a foosball table and free beer on Fridays. Like if that was the culture, the perks that you were hiding behind pre COVID to, to help yourself think that you had a good culture now it's being laid bare that your culture actually had some gaps. And also, everything means anything means everything. So you tell people that we're not we're going to do summer Fridays. You tell people we're not going to do meetings after five o'clock. And then the moment, especially in this environment, you actually flip to the opposite side. You schedule meetings. You uh, while you have off, you have summer Fridays. You're really scheduling meetings during those summer Fridays. What happens is that trust becomes eroded so quickly. Mm-hmm. It's, it's so much harder to get it back. And I and I remember I, I read a data survey, I mean, a survey that was saying recently that if employees trust their employer's commitments, their engagement level can increase up to 20%. Now, maybe that doesn't sound so high, but the likelihood that they'll leave their organization decreases by 87% if they trust you. Mm, absolutely. And so, so let's let's yeah. dive into that because you know, you have talked about issues starting off as a profit problem when it's really a people problem. Yes. So how do people I think there's a lot of leaders that are like, yes, we need to create that organizational culture where trust and respect and safety are valued and are measured as the bottom line. But how do we do that? Like practically, can you give us some examples of what that looks like to maybe give listeners a place to start 
if their culture is, you know, or to, to look at and say, oh, we are doing this right. Yeah. So, so we, we created the ready zone. We created this diagnostic formula that we affectionately call zone performance indicators. There are KPIs that you can actually see whether or not this is happening. And we actually call them, and I'll give you some examples within it, but we call it, um, so there's six of them. So there's pivot ready, which is all around the level of shiftability that you have. I know that pivot has been an overused term, but I think it gets a bad rap because it's really about what are you baking into the culture that you can shift all the time. Action ready is around, you'll love this, is around your level of emotional agility. It's around what kind of living legacy are you breathing into the organization for yourself and your team and the company all the time, the boundaries you set, also how you, the observer that you are and how you see the world. Influence ready is around visibility and influence. Connect ready is around communication. Impact ready is around building teams. And culture ready is all around how you create an environment where coaching and mentoring is just what people do. It's just a way that they walk around in the world. Mm-hmm. So, <clears throat> so I'll give you an example of uh, of what I'm of what I'm talking about. So there was a there was a founder group. There's a, a company, a very successful company, and they were looking to grow and scale more dramatically. But what was happening originally at at the base is they were saying the founders that actually founded the organization, there's some dysfunction within that within that group. So when we looked at the model of the Ready Zone model, we were looking at the the basic place we're starting is we're talking about impact ready where this this team, how can you grow and scale an organization if the founders are not doing the work they need to do? But -hmm. then what we also saw is action ready is around, around the observer that you are and how you look out into the world and what what do you see and how does that dictate what you choose to do or not do? So what we did was we did an assessment of the founder group and we brought them together and actually reunited them to the basis and the essence for where they actually created their company, which was at the time around 14 or 15 years old. And they had created this company you know, years ago. And then what they realized is that, okay, you know, we don't have, we've been insanely successful, but we do not have a vision narrative, an articulated sense of what the future we want to create. And also while we've been insanely successful, we also don't have really these bold steps articulated that we want to create that we can rally the whole organization around. Mm -hmm. So what we did was we created what we call a vision narrative, different than a vision because a vision is, you know, people, a tagline like Nike, just do it. But this is like three paragraphs that really paints a picture of a future state of where they wanted to go and grow. And people were, and we socialized it in the organization. And then we did a, um, and then we got a group of people together from all across the globe. They'd never done this before. And we talked about the vision. And now given that, what do they want to create? Mm-hmm. What, what are they up to? And people are so excited to be able to put a stamp on what they wanted the future of the business to look like because they were so passionate about the business. Yeah. And you don't all, you don't always find that but you're so passionate about what they did. Well, they so- know they know where they're going now. And and this is where you know our work intersects because as a brand strategist, to your point, a vision is not a tagline. A vision is a narrative. It's it's the articulation of the future state 
that you're actually working towards. And sometimes I even challenge my brand clients to come up with a vision that would actually put them out of business. That if this future state, if this future state was achieved, you wouldn't need our organization anymore. And that is that is a that is longer than a sentence. That is longer than a word. That is something where I I need to know where I'm going. But you also, you know, it's not just I'm going to Hawaii. Paint me a picture about what that looks like when I get there. Well, and and you're right that it became so inspiring that then an organization that didn't necessarily have strategy in the way that perhaps we would define it then created these big, bold steps for themselves right? and started creating the level of execution that we involved people throughout the organization that had never been involved in any kind of execution strategy like this. Yeah. You know, it's like, it's, you know, oftentimes people don't have the patience to do development, but Absolutely. I really believe in development through the work. Yeah. And so then we were putting people super passionate about certain segments in charge of it and to almost be the captains of these ships. Mm-hmm. And then they're able to organize to actually start delivering. And as a result, the organization was able to start growing and scaling and their profitability dramatically increased as a result of those steps that they made. There's, there's this idea of trying to put it together a strategy before you actually have a vision. And if you don't have a vision of where you're going, where the ultimate destination is, you can't figure out how will we get there, which is the strategy. Well, I think that it's it's a couple of things. One is that I've seen this a lot, especially in organizations that have merged. Um, the organizations, I can't tell you how many organizations I'm working with that either have reorganized the companies, reorganized the teams, and there and there are people inside the organization waiting, literally waiting for a vision to emerge. And so a lot of work that we're doing is just small pockets, like this division, create your own, this division, create your own, this division, create your own. Now it's not an ideal situation, but here's the thing also that when you're creating transformation inside of organizations, sometimes it's very difficult to actually create a picture of a future that you don't yet know what it fully looks like. But what I find that, especially during times of change, people want to have road under their feet. So what I tell people is, you know, what we talk often about is what can you control and then what you can you create based around that. So I'll give you an example. Like there was a division, a, CIA, a, a, a corporate social responsibility division one in one of the organizations we're working with, and their company just merged. And the leader was saying, I can't, I, if I, I see people all around me that are waiting for the organization to say, or to bring in like a McKinsey or an Accenture to start doing the work to tell us where we're going and where we're headed so that we know how to organize our strategy. She's like, I can't wait. We have business to run. We have things to do. And so she's like, you know, so we're, we were talking about, okay, create your own right now for whatever, you know, so this way, at least that you can set strategy based on a context that you've created the context. And then you see within the organization about getting buy-in for it. Now, I know it's not ideal, but when you're running a business moment to moment, you need a agile way to do this in order for you to feel like you can rally yourself behind something and then you can rally your people around it. So for example, this executive that I'm talking about now 
her team has a purpose. Now, do they not get a little wobbly at certain times because they say, well, wait a second, how is what we're doing feeding into the hole? But if they waited, there would there would be nothing. And mm. most most likely what would happen is the business would look at them and say, you know what? I don't even know what these people are doing. We should let them go, which is not now as a result of the fact that they've self-generated. Now they're becoming a model for other divisions inside of the organization of how to be more nimble. I love that so much. I mean, that's we t- I talk about that a lot in terms of, you know, from the aspect of empathy you know, people just sort of giving up going, you know, well, our culture will never be empathetic. Our, our CEO will never, you know, mandate and measure empathy, but you can create micro cultures within your team, within your department, within your part of the organization and to do exactly what you just said, which is become a model because as they succeed doing what they're doing, people will start to take notice and they're going to go, I want to do that for myself. And then all of a sudden you start getting people on board with understanding the value of a vision linked to strategy. So I, I love that example. Um, I want to get back to the original question that we kind of talked about, which is how we create organizational cultures where trust, respect, and safety are valued. And you talked about a really important piece of that, which is helping people understand where they're going and, and sticking to your word as a way to, of building trust. But what, I guess my question is what, with your clients, how do you help them measure trust, respect, and safety, psychological safety? Well, what we do is, first of all, for the ready zone, we have an assessment that we do give people. So this way they can see, because the zones are made up of the environments. Because you have to remember, trust, respect, and psychological safety are a, uh, they're a, what, what would I say? They're a fabric of many, many things, yes. right? So, so um, they're, it's interpersonal relationships, constructive and respectful debate, dialogue. I mean, that's very small, right? Uh, minute examples. Or feeling like you can contribute an idea, feeling like you can take a risk. Like there, you're, what you're saying is there's a lot of threads knotted into those concepts. That's right, because it can feel it can seem very amorphous. That's why originally when we created these zones, I'll give you an example in a second. But when we created these zones, it was for people to contextualize the elements for which create that. So, for example, if I'm working, if I have, if I'm being measured against certain aspects of how I morph and change and anticipate change, that creates, <clears throat> I mean, that creates psychological safety for the people that that I work with or that report to me. If I actually am emotionally resilient, so it's not, you know, the the boss that walks in the office, small example, how I am emotionally one day, and then I'm radically different another, that also creates a sense of balance and stability for me when we're going through all these erratic changes. If I'm able to build, if how I index, you know, influence is the leadership currency. If I'm able to influence by actually stepping out and being visible and being able to find my own voice and to speak up and to articulate things that are really important and to build relationships based on giving rather than taking, that also creates a sense of stability and trust. If I'm able to communicate, have difficult conversations, not avoid them, not sidestep them, not kind of have a tough conversation, mm-hmm. but really do how right. I'm actually able to be my word, how I'm building, 
how I have a way to actually measure how I'm building effective and impactful teams and taking care of my people mm-hmm. and how I'm baking into the fabric of what I'm doing, coaching and mentoring. So we're always taking care of each other. Then that is the, that's the, that's foundation. So let me give you a few examples but that before you do, before yeah. you do, I want to, I want to pick that apart a little bit more because again, yeah. how do you measure those things? You can't just ask a leader, do you adapt well to change? Yes or no? Like, so how do you measure that for people? How do you measure those aspects that you just talked about? Is it a before and after? And is the after, after leadership development in areas where they need improvement? I would say that it's, it's several things. So development can always be a part of it, meaning that, well, when, when I hear that you say development, I'm not necessarily talking about an external force or you need HR to come in and do a series of trainings. One of the, one of the things you can measure as an example is typically when we talk about leadership, we talk about actions and results, right? That's what you, you and I are talking about, right? You take mm-hmm. actions that lead to certain results. We don't like the results, we change the actions. But what we never deal with, we, not never, but what we, we sidestep dealing with is the observer. The observer looks out on the world. I look out on the world and I take actions that lead to certain results, but we don't take, and it's like the definition of insanity is if we're just dealing with the actions and results, we don't deal with the person. So that is one signpost. So let me give you an example within that. So we teach people to create resiliency by what I call pivot moments. What I mean by that, as you know, especially since COVID, we can't control change, but what we can control is our intentions and our actions. You know, think about it. Anyone can change for like a moment and you can actually measure that incrementally. Are you seeing something differently in this moment or not? Are you taking different action steps or not, right? You can do that for 30 seconds, a minute. <laughs> if I ask mm-hmm. you to, for a long time, you tell me I've lost my mind. Mm-hmm. But what, but pivot moments that we call is it builds up resilience and gives you evidence or proof that I can, you can, we all can actually change and have the strength to continue. So pivot moments are made up of looking at what your current reality is. That comes about how you feel about the change or your emotions, how you experience it, or the actions or inactions you're taking, which could support the changes or not. And if you are honest with yourself, you could see if your output is a match to your intention. So for example, I had uh, a client named Aisha who has only gotten increasingly frustrated with her boss, Jamila, who's the president of content at one of the uh, companies in California. And she's really frustrated that Jamila cannot make decisions. She vacillates or she'll make a decision and go back on it and she can't handle conflict. Now, Aisha is seen as the number two executive in the department and on the team So what does Aisha do as any type A person would do? She steps in, starts making decisions where she shouldn't be, or she looks to push more strategic decisions out of just sheer frustration. And she's the situation's really escalated. But her intention is she said to me, look, I want to be able to measure my level of how effective I am with my boss. I want to be able to manage up with greater ease. I want to be a collaborator. I want to step away when I'm frustrated instead of leaning and solve everything. So when we started to work through this formula for current reality, and we talked about her emotions, this would resonate with you quite a bit. She's like, look, I'm angry. I'm frustrated. I'm disappointed. 
but she really was, was heartbroken, which I'll get to in a second. Mm. And her experience about her bosses, she doesn't know how to manage your lead. Her lack of decision-making is going to get her into trouble. She isn't strategic. She leads with her ego. But when we talked about the actions, actual proof, actions she's taking to support her intention of managing up with greater ease and being a collaborator, she's like, look, she started laughing. She's like, look, I'm stepping in to make decisions where it's not appropriate. When it was time to do a reorganization plan with her peer, who also can't make decisions, she stepped in to set all the strategy. So she wasn't sharing with her boss her frustration and what they can do together to change things. And she was thinking about leaving, which would have been a massive, massive financial hit to the organization. So when she looked at this, if she paused to get real with herself to see what's feasible, that's what I call possibility. She could see something for what it is, not what she preferred. So what she got clear is then she could put herself in the driver's seat of choice or what I call opportunity to see practically and pragmatically what she needs to stop and start doing to create a new outcome. So as a result of that, then she was able to have a conversation with her boss, set strategy differently, and then emerge more critically as a leader of the division. And then longer term, actually, her colleague wound up getting let go because he couldn't make decisions. Right. And what I love about what you're saying is the reason why we have to bring emotions into our work. We have to stop this idea of being emotionless as leaders and emotionless at work because we are human beings and it impacts the way we observe things. It impacts the actions we take as leaders. And so I love that part of your work is helping your clients understand and recognize the emotions they are feeling as part of the process where you might have a leader going, it doesn't matter how I feel. This is what's actually happening. But we we don't function that way as human beings. We bring our emotions to our work. If the pandemic has taught us anything, if you know social unrest has taught us anything, is we cannot park our humanity at the office door and then just be automatons as we lead or as we work. And so helping people understand the practical reason why you have to have emotional intelligence as a leader because it helps you make better decisions. It helps you understand your actions. It helps you understand cause and effect. So I'm just loving this example that you're giving because a different coach or you know, possibly might say, well, it's all about just the inputs and outputs of the structure of the organization and how decisions are made. And the answer is that your boss needs to be fired because they can't make decisions. Well, <laughs> it's, I, it's yeah. very cold. It's very just like, that's not how we interact as humans. Well, I'd say a couple of things to that. One is we have to remember that emotions are signposts about what's important to us. Yes. Second thing is that like I find... For example, there was a program that we were leading inside of a company and we had 22 people on and they were saying we're tired of people of our people in this company complaining, which was funny because one could say that they were complaining, but they were saying we're tired. (laughs) We're complaining. We're complaining about other people complaining. Yeah. Well, I said, (laughs) what if you saw a complaint is not a complaint, but what someone is really committed to, Mm -hmm. if you heard it as a commitment then how would it shift your actions of what you're willing, of how you're willing to see the situation and the assumptions that you're making that really may not be valid anymore. 
so I think that, you know, it's an interesting thing because uh, well, there's so much body of work now, what you're talking about regarding emotions, but it's really a, it's, they're not soft skills anymore. I wish that that phrase would just be burned in effigy, but hundred percent with you. <laughs> they're actually, you know, you know, this organ, if you really boil it down, organizations invest, if you really boil it down, the, the money to train and develop people, it all comes down to these soft, these inherent soft skills that people are talking about that are very, very concrete. And so people be fired over some of the things that you and I are talking about, if not done right anymore these days. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's critically, it's critically important, but I think it's important for people to know that your emotions are signposts, but they're not actually, your emotions don't, it's not that they are true or not. You have to actually ground them in to see whether or not your emotions are telling you the truth or they're leading you in a direction of something that's important to you. So it's important that you're able to develop the facility to be able to step back, to be able to do that, because then you can lead much more impactfully. Amen. I mean, that's really where it comes down to. And, you know, you really answered my question I was going to ask you, which is how our emotions, our body and our language impact our performance in a real and substantive way, because they are signposts. They are, you know, when you, when you're emotionally intelligent enough and emotionally um, capable enough to look, you know, and I work on this every day. I'm not saying this as like a guru on high that has mastered this in my life, but <laughs> someone I'm always, something I'm always striving to do is to, is to look at my emotions and say, well, what is that telling me about the situation? You know, you brought up the issue before about um, frustration. It's not just about frustration. It's about someone feeling heartbroken or, or someone yes. feeling like trust has been broken and I'm dealing with a situation with an organization that I'm involved with where that's exactly why I'm having those emotions of resentment and anger and frustration. It's because I feel like they let me down and yeah. I am heartbroken at my, my trust and stability in them being broken. Yeah. I think that's, it's a, what you're talking about is so powerful because when you can distinguish as an example with the executive that I mentioned before, we, she was showing up and, and really battling how, how does she navigate a situation that's untenable with a strategy that's in the wrong direction, where there is, um, where there's a lack of cohesiveness, there's a lack of messaging, there's, there's a lack of alignment. You know, I can go on and on and on. Mm -hmm. But what we really got to is that she took this job because of who this person was to her, because she thought she would be a mentor, that she'd be a teacher, that she'd be a guide. Mm. She was heartbroken. Yeah, now, she, feel, she feels let down. Yes. But at the end of the day, it's interesting because she learned a lot, not the way that she thought. And so, um, and so it's a lot different to say you're frustrated than to say you're heartbroken, which mm -hmm. is, I think, the essence of what you're talking about. And that leads to like what Dr. Susan David talks about emotional granularity, which is if we can get people to really talk about it, then we can really address the real issues and we can move people faster through performance that way than mm -hmm. slower. So I, I, this was a question I wasn't expecting to ask you, but given this juicy conversation, <laughs> how do we, how do we help leaders talk through emotion 
in a more constructive way, especially those leaders that shy away from talking about emotion in the context of creating strategies, in the context of doing what needs to be done. Do you have any sort of gems of advice around how you get more comfortable as a leader managing and dealing with emotions, both your own and potentially the emotions of the people on your team? Well, I would say that it's it's a it's a not a zero sum game. So there's not like a pill for the ill, but I would say that is a few things. One is that for executives that are very driven by return on investment, if they are able to get to the bottom line to the to the cause and not the effect, then they're actually able to get to performance a lot faster. So if you're able to get really smart about the questions you ask, then you're actually able to get to the performance and the output a lot faster. So um, there's a gentleman named Julio Alala who talks a lot about the fact that it's about the question, it's not about the answer. And so one is to, is to have leaders orient themselves around their level of curiosity and questioning as a method to get to performance, to get to the level of performance that they truly want. The second thing is to also understand part of it too. Like I've had people say to me during the pandemic, I'm not a therapist. You're asking me to be a therapist. I got, I don't want to come in and hear people's emotions. And I, you know, I always say to them, take five minutes and just do it because at the end of the day, that's what's going to engage people, not anything else. So it's also helping leaders measure the ROI. If they're actually putting in, let's say, touch points of the beginning of their meetings, what's something we want to celebrate, getting people to talk about how they're feeling as a result of certain changes, and then absolutely taking a look at their performance vis-a-vis the quarter before when they didn't do any of it, that's a way to also have proof in it. But it's, it's really, I would say, you have to connect it with your value system. I've had leaders where... Talking about emotions is so off the table, I can't even tell you. But when you connect it, for example, like someone who's, I said to an executive once, I said, you have no interest in people. And she started laughing. She's like, that's not true. And I said, it is true. We did some assessments and I'm like, you, you're all about ROI. I said, so if you're all about ROI, then your conversation's all about a return on investment. You invest 10 minutes and talking to this person about what their experience is, how they were thinking about this project, about the um, about this issue, how they were setting strategy, what they felt about it in the meantime, and how they oriented themselves to it, I guarantee you that that will give you a greater output. And she did, but she had to tie it in for her around the fact that she's all about a return on investment, not giving for the sake of giving. Which I know sounds horrible, but it's the no, truth. No, I just I love the way you've articulated this because this is exactly what I struggle with articulating. That it 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 is it is your job as a leader. Your job as a leader is not to do the same things that you did as a worker. You are now leading people. There's a there's a different skill set involved. And yes, it involves being interested in your people so you can empower them and engage them and help them do their best work. That is your job as a leader. It's not, you know, whatever the the function is that you're leading. And so it's it I often joke about like it's why you're getting paid more. 
<laughs> that's why you have a title now. That's that's bigger. It's because it is expected of you. So I love the way that you articulated that. And again, helping people deal with that emotion by tying it back to performance, by tying it back to that is your ultimate goal is to help your team perform. And if that is your ultimate goal and your value, then we are going to have to deal with with the messiness of humanity. <laughs> so, <laughs> um, Esther, this has been such a great conversation. I, I want to talk to you longer, but I know I have to let you go. Um, so just quickly for folks on the go, we're going to have all your links in the show notes and especially the link to your book, Better Leaders, Better People, Better Results, Six Eye-Opening Strategies to Thrive Through Change You Didn't Ask For, which is a fabulous subtitle. We're going to have a link to that as well for folks. But for folks on the go, where's the best place that they can find out more about you and your work? It's really super simple. Just go to our website, the ready, R-E-A-D-Y zone, Z-O-N-E dot com. Wonderful. And it's a great, it's a great website, great resources there. Thank you again for your time, Esther, and for, for helping, helping us figure out how to be leaders that can adapt to any change. It, like we talked about in the best of times and the worst of times. Thank you so much, Marie. I really appreciate you. And thank you for listening to another great episode of the Empathy Edge, dear listener. If you like what you heard, of course, as always, please share it with a colleague or a friend. Don't forget to rate and review on the podcast player of your choice. And until next time, always remember that cash flow, creativity, and compassion are not mutually exclusive. Take care and be kind. Thanks for listening to this episode of The Empathy Edge. If you're enjoying the podcast, please subscribe and leave a review on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. And don't forget to share the show with others who want to redefine success and change the game. For more on how empathy makes you and your brand more successful, visit TheEmpathyEdge.com. There, you can download a free guide outlining five business benefits of empathy and a free sample chapter of Maria's book, The Empathy Edge. Until next time. Remember that a more empathetic world starts with you and leads to tremendous success.